first John chapter four. We will read verse seven down to verse twelve. First John four seven down to verse twelve. The Bible says there, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us. That God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, If God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. But if we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. Well, brethren, we are back to our series of messages in... um, First John, and we are currently going through this lengthy section of First John, this extended section where John is dealing with the subject of love as a test of our salvation, as proof of our salvation. He is not saying that if you love, then you are a super spiritual Christian, You are a perfect believer. No. He's simply saying, if you love, that is proof that you are a Christian. And as we saw last time, if you do not love, it is proof that you are not a child of God. Remember, that's what we saw in verse 8, where John says, anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. So this is a dividing line between whether you're going to go to heaven or whether you're going to go to hell. It is not about rewards, whether you will be as an individual rewarded a thousand times or rewarded a hundred times or not rewarded at all, but still finding yourself in heaven. This is saying to us very seriously that if you fail this test, you are not going to heaven. Instead, you are still on your way to hell. In the passage we are looking at together this morning, which is really verse 9, John goes on to show us what true love really looks like. And basically he is saying We do not discover what true love really looks like by looking at one another. We discover what true love looks like 
by looking at God himself. Now that shouldn't surprise us because if you remember the way he ended verse 8, he said because God is love. He's not saying God is loving. He is love. In other words, it's of the very essential nature of God. This thing called love. And therefore, it is only right that he should now say, let us look at the way in which this love shows itself. And I think that's a very helpful thing. Because most of us will be quick to, to want to qualify this love to, so that we can somehow justify ourselves that indeed we are loving. Yes, we may not love like that one and we may not love like that other one, but surely we are still loving. And so John says, fine, let's now look at love as it is demonstrated in God himself. What does it look like? And once we see it this week, and the Lord willing, next time when we are in this passage, we'll be looking at verse 10, we will have no excuse whatsoever for claiming to be loving when in actual fact we are not. Because we would have gazed in the face of love itself, not by peeping into heaven, but love manifested right here on earth. We will have no excuse for continuing to justify ourselves when really on the judgment day, God will be shaking his head. So clearly, as we look at verse 9 and verse 10, our responsibility should be to examine ourselves. As we look at this love, we should be saying to ourselves, is this true of me? Is this the way my own claim to love? Is this the way it is? So there we are in verse 9. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us. That God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. The first thing we see there in this passage is that we do not need to guess what true love looks like because God's love has been manifested. Isn't that the beginning of that verse? In this, the love of God was made manifest among us. That word manifest has to do with making visible. It's what happens when there is a play taking place on a stage and to begin with the curtains are closed and the time comes when they open the curtains. So we are now able to see what is there on the stage. It comes out in the open. Now, clearly, it suggests something. 
First of all, it suggests that that's not the beginning of that item. It has been there before, only that it wasn't visible. We couldn't see it until the curtains opened. And that's what this passage is telling us about the love of God. It is the fact that it's not like that's when God began to love. The love has always been there. In fact, as we are already learning, it is part of his very nature. He is love. The word is used at the beginning of uh, this epistle in chapter 1 and verse 2, about Jesus himself. Let's quickly peep there. First John, chapter 1 and verse 2. I begin from verse 1. Listen to this. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life. And then here is the phrase. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life. So notice, it was in the beginning and now has been made manifest. Referring to the Lord Jesus Christ. He did not begin his existence when he was conceived in the virgin's womb. No. He existed from all eternity. Or, as First Peter puts it, let's quickly go two books before. First Peter chapter 1. First Peter chapter 1 and verse 20. Again referring to the Lord Jesus Christ, the one we were singing about earlier on as the Lamb of God. We are told in verse 20, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you. There it is again. He pre-existed, but now has been revealed. Now in this particular case, we are being told not so much about Jesus himself as about the love of God. This love of God was made manifest among us. In other words, perhaps in heaven, in the activities of God, the angels had already seen something of this love. But here on earth, we may have remained ignorant. But clearly, now, this love has been made manifest. It has appeared. It is now visible among us, taking away every excuse from us. An excuse of ignorance. An excuse where we begin to define love by any other form that we might be comfortable with. Love has been revealed. Now, that's not just true about God. 
it is true about love all the time. True love cannot be hidden. True love does not remain in here. True love invariably is practical in nature. True love does something. That's the way it is. It does something. It is a dynamo that soon gets into work. And therefore, we don't need someone to tell us that they love us. We would have already seen from their actions that they do. For instance, when the Lord Jesus Christ was speaking about his second coming, and he was talking about dividing human beings into two clean camps in Matthew chapter 25, a passage I've referred to a few times before. Have you noticed how he is not saying that because you loved me, that's why I'm bringing you in, but he's talking about actual, concrete actions. Let's quickly go back to that passage we've looked at a few times before. Matthew chapter 25. Matthew 25. I want you to notice that you know, Jesus is not using a, a, an emotional stethoscope to put it against the chest to see whether the heart is going and say, yeah, 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 no, you, you are loving, coming, coming, coming. Look at what he lists. Verse 35. Matthew 25 and verse 35. Let me begin from verse 34. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. It's actual activity. Love manifesting itself. And notice it's not saying, I had bri, and you came to visit. Because there, of course you love yourself. And your enzymes are telling you, come on man, can't you smell the food? Go! What's wrong with you? But in this case he's saying, I was hungry. So you came with the food. You gave me the food so that my hunger could go away. The opposite is equally true of those who clearly had no love in their hearts. This is the way he puts it in verse 41. 
Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed into the everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. And this is what he gives. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick, and in prison, and you did not visit me. In other words, love is visible. It is practical. It does something. So stop claiming to be loving when the evidence seems to show nothing. 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 But a self-centered, warped little life that only thinks about itself. God's love was made manifest. Therefore, he is love. What about you? What about you? When people think in terms of individuals in the church who really love them, is your name likely to pop up? Based on activity. Because they don't see the heart. They can't see the heart. And in this matter, it's not a matter of saying, yeah, but you know, you can't see the heart. Who says we need to? Love is visible. It does something. It's practical. So I ask again, if individuals in the church were to to speak in terms of those who've loved them, who've loved them, is your name likely to pop up? Well, what we have in this passage of scripture is the highest demonstration of God's love. It is seen in two ways. The first is the incarnation of the Son of God, which we will be looking at in a moment. And the second is the atonement of the Son of God, which we'll look at next time. Back to our text, 1 John chapter 4. In verse 9 we are told, in this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. And then with respect to the atonement is in verse 10. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he has loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sin. We'll leave that second part for next time. For now, the manifestation of God's love is being seen in him sending his son into the world. God sent his only son into the world. I don't normally go into Greek, and I won't speak in terms of the actual Greek words, But the actual Greek writing puts it this way. That his son, his only one, God sent into the world. 
his son, his only one, God sent into the world. And normally with Greek, what comes first is where the emphasis is. And you can't therefore miss where the emphasis is. That as a display of his love, who does God give? His son. The one that has been in fellowship with him, sweet fellowship with him for all eternity. Not an angel. His son is the one that he sends into this world. And just in case you begin thinking, well, he might have five of them, so, you know, what's, what's the problem? You can always give over one. He says he's only, he's only emphasizing the uniqueness. Now, I know some versions add the little word only begotten. And uh, that's something that we've picked up from the Latin version of the Bible. But the actual phrase there is simply emphasizing the uniqueness. I'll take you to three passages of scripture very quickly. Um, in, in Luke chapter 8, chapter 7, chapter 8, and chapter 9. And then we will go to one in Hebrews 11. In chapter 7, 8, and 9, you would conclude that it is referring to therefore the only begotten because in each of the three, that's the only child. But by the time we come to Hebrews 11, it soon becomes clear that that only is not referring to only begotten, but it's referring to the uniqueness, this the, the special one and only in this category. Let's quickly people there. Let's begin with Luke chapter 7 and chapter 8 and chapter 9. The gospel of Luke. And in each case, I want you to notice the, the heart-rending situation because it's the one and only. Chapter 7, verse 12. I begin reading from verse 11. Soon afterward, Jesus went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. Now listen to this. As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out. And here it is. The only son of his mother. And she was a widow. And a considerable crowd from the town was with her. Do you notice how that little phrase, the only son of his mother, makes your heart feel for this woman? And then the addition she was a widow, finishes you off. Chapter 8 and verse 42. Chapter 8 and verse 42. 
I begin from verse 40. Now when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. And there came a man named Jairus, Jairus rather, who was a ruler of the synagogue. And here it is. And falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house. For he had an only daughter, about 12 years of age, and she was dying. And the point is made, isn't it? That Jesus should say, I think let's change our plans here. It's an only daughter. And she's still young, 12 years old. So anyway, Jesus finally commands and she is brought back to health. Chapter chapter 9, sorry. Chapter 9. And this time, verse 38. I begin with verse 37. On the next day, when they had come down from the mountain, a great crowd met with Jesus. And behold, a man from the crowd cried out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only son. Again, the point is being made. Come on. I don't have five sons. I only have one place. Do something. The spirit seizes him and he suddenly cries out. It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and shatters him and you hardly leave him. I've begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. The man is now pleading to rescue the only son that the man is pleading to rescue an only daughter. And then there is this widow going to bury an only son. You can see there that the, the situation demands holding back, isn't it? That's not what you give. That's what you, you keep. You, you don't let go of such a only Now, it is in Hebrews 11 that this phrase again is used, and it soon becomes clear there that it's not necessarily uh, an only begotten, but it is definitely special and unique. Hebrews 11 and verse 17 Hebrews 11, verse 17, by faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son. Now, I'm sure you know that biologically, Isaac was not his only son. I I know you all want to sound as if you know your Bibles, but I can give you the answer. There was Isaac, but before him was who? Aha. Okay. And consequently, 
The uniqueness lies in the next phrase, verse 18, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offering, offspring be named. Through Isaac. In other words, he was one of a kind. He was unique. And it is this uniqueness that is being emphasized. So even with respect to us, yes, those of us who are God's children have been brought into God's family as sons. But Jesus stands out uniquely. He is one of a kind. He is the only one who is God himself. He is the only one who has been in fellowship with the Father from all eternity. He is the only one in that position. And imagine what God does. The exact opposite of all these other examples we had. He sends him. He sends him into the world. Now, that's love. It's love because it was humiliation on his part. It was. When he took on the form of man, he underwent a humiliation. It involved him stepping down, as it were, so that he is now living as though he is a created being. Indeed, the Bible speaks about it as a self-emptying in Philippians and chapter 2. A self-emptying. It speaks about it as taking on the form of a servant. Living now a life of actual obedience to the Father. In fact, the Bible makes it clear that he took on our nature in its fallen condition in terms of the fact that he could get hungry, he could get tired, and everything else that often happens with us. God the Father deliberately put him through all that. It was already a sacrifice. Even before we reach Calvary, even before. Remember how, where he was born, in a cow shed. Remember what happened immediately after that. He had to be quickly rescued, taken into Egypt because somebody was after his life. Herod the Great. Remember all that. And all the suffering that he went through even before he took our place on Calvary, which we'll look at next time. The bottom line is this. True love is sacrificial. It sacrifices. It sacrifices even the best. It does. Sacrifices the best. Let me ask again. Is that true of you? Your so-called love. Is it a love that gives? A love that willingly loses something? 
especially the best that you have? Is that what's happening? Now I know you like it to say, well, you know, at least I'm better than my husband. You know, he's stingy. Me, at least I give. We're not comparing you to your husband or to your wife. It's God that must be compared to. He is love. And his nature is begotten in those who belong to him. Those whom he has saved. Those whom he has regenerated. So the question is not, am I better than my husband or better than my wife? The question is, am I like God? Lastly, the nature of love is appreciated when you consider what it seeks to achieve. What it seeks to achieve. With respect to God, listen to the way it's put. Back to our text, and this time I need to hurry. It says that, in this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world, and here is what he was trying to achieve, so that we might live through him. So that we might live through him. In other words, we were in a position of death. Either we were dead already, Oh, the axe was hanging over our heads and beyond a certain debt, we would be dead. Whichever picture it is, as I'll soon show you, is still correct. In one sense, we are already dead. How? Well, the truth of the matter is that we are individuals that are born spiritually dead. We are. We are born already under that pronouncement that came upon Adam and Eve. In the spiritual sense, we've got no connection with God. Spiritually speaking, God now was changing this through his son by sending him into this world. But we are also dead in terms of the pronouncement that was made by God to Adam in terms of being born already physically dead in terms of the seed of death already being in us. And Jesus came in order to reverse that. That there would be a time when death, physically speaking, would be no more. Absolutely no more. And then also as we speak further into the future, there is the second death or the eternal death that is the punishment that God will give to those whom he sends to hell. Again, Jesus came to reverse that. So that instead of eternal death, we would have eternal life. Instead of being in hell, we would be in heaven. That's what he has come to do. That's what he was sent to do. In other words, it's a God who loves us and stops our misery, stops our suffering, deliberately turns it around, stops our death, and instead 
gives us joy, gives us life, gives us everything positive that you can think about. That's his goal, to change our circumstances. Now that's what love is true about. True love is action that is purposefully undertaken for the good of its objects, deliberately so. It's not, ah, you know, these people, here's some money, come on, get out of here, get out of here. No, no, that's not love. Love is, this person is suffering, or this person will suffer if he continues this way. Let me do something about it, so that instead of misery and suffering, there will be joy, bliss, glory, and everything else that's coming. Deliberately purposefully. Again, I'm asking, is this true of you? Is it? Are you a person who deliberately focuses your eyes on others, knowing that if I do something, I will reduce their suffering? Their lives will be better. And you deliberately want to pay for it. To sacrifice your money. To sacrifice your time. To sacrifice your possessions. So that tomorrow, where you saw sadness, you now see joy. You see thanksgiving. And you have a sense of fulfillment. Because that's what love is all about. Okay, brethren, we've just seen one example of this, and the Lord willing, next time we'll be seeing the second in the atonement of the Lord Jesus Christ. The point that is being made here is that all claims to ignorance about the nature of love, they are all taken away from us immediately because God's own love has been made manifest. And it's right at the center of history. It's recorded in the scriptures. It's there for anybody to be able to see. This is what God has done. This is love in action. So don't wait for the judgment day. It will be too late. This is the time to do some serious heart searching. Are you loving? Do you truly love? Again, as I've said before, don't go searching in your, your heart. Because true love doesn't remain there. True love pours out of the heart. Simply look at the last seven days and ask yourself, what's the dynamo that set you into motion? What is it? What is it that has dictated in terms of how you've used your time, how you've used your money, how you've used your own gifts and abilities and training and so on? Look at that. What is it showing? A person who loves the brethren or a person who simply loves himself? Now, if you fail the test, thankfully with Christianity, that doesn't mean, oh, give up now, you know, you're just going to go to hell, you know, terrible you and so No, 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 no. 
The goodness with Christianity is when you discover you failed the test, you go to Jesus Christ in prayer and you say, Lord, I've seen enough evidence. I'm not a Christian. There's no difference between the old me and the new me. It's still the me that's been selfish, self-centered throughout. I don't really care about the brethren. I hear announcements in front here about this one has had a funeral and the other one has been involved in an accident and, and the other one this and the other one that. And it's just like water off a duck's back. I quickly just shake myself. It's all gone back to my usual agendas in life. Some self-aggrandizement. That's me. Lord, help me. Save me from myself so that my life may begin to revolve around others, especially your children, that something in me might be gripped when I hear that your child is suffering to the point where I don't spare and I sacrifice. Lord Jesus, save And I want to assure you, that's why these tests are here. They are so that we may discover now if we are in the wrong camp. So that now we may cry to him. Now we may be rescued by him. And consequently, we can rejoice. On the other hand, if, if you can see that, yes, there's been a difference. Previously, I was not affected at all by the needs of God's children. I just went on. But something has happened to me. Well, you know what? It's not a time to pat ourselves on the back. No. It's a time for us to rejoice in this God who saves. To love, to sing, and to wonder at the grace of God. Especially in the light of what he himself has done. And then to see him doing something like this in our hearts. Oh, that we might rejoice in such a God. Amen.